Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. Now I've got a bit of time on my hands over the next month or two, so I am planning to put together a few more podcasts than I usually do. So watch this space. But I am also looking for somebody to sponsor these podcasts. So if you're a keen listener and you have deep pockets and you want to sponsor this podcast and have your name up front, or you know someone else who might be interested in doing that, um, then please drop me a line. Uh, frizzers at gmail.com is my email address, or you can find it at dominicfrisbee.com. And we will talk right advertisement over. I have been reading a book called Wealth Secrets of the 1%, the truth about money, markets and million and multimillionaires, I should say. And the, by the title of that book, it sounds like it's one of these kind of um, Tony Robbins type, unleash your inner potential and you can get as rich as the 1% type of books. It isn't like that at all. It actually retells the, the story of some of the richest people in history um, from ancient Rome to industrial America to the present day. And there is a common theme among all these multi-millionaires or billionaires. And it's called, like I say, it's called Wealth Secrets of the 1%, but maybe a more accurate title is Wealth Secrets of the 0.0001%, because that's who this book is dealing with. And anyone who believes in, you know, free markets and equality of uh, uh, opportunity and all those things will realise that the very rich got very rich by manipulating markets and creating monopolies for themselves, not because of free markets, in spite of free markets. Um, and the author is an economist. His name is Sam Wilkin. Um, he's an economist, economist with Oxford Analytica, and he's with me now. Sam, welcome to the show. What a terrific book. Um, I guess the, the question is, why did you write it? Well, uh, quite a few reasons, but uh, I guess one of the major reasons is I wanted to um, I wanted to level the playing field a little bit because, um, as you may have noticed, a lot of people have gotten very rich uh, recently um, in um, the U.S. and U.K. Especially, uh, inequality has increased uh, a great uh, deal, and uh, you know, there. It tends to be some mythologizing about the new uh, super rich uh, among us and even the one percent who t tend to work for the companies that are you know, owned by these super rich. And I wanted to explain why um, on a sort of more micro level, a personal level, this is happening and, and what uh, people are doing that is making them so rich, which uh, isn't, as, as you alluded to in your introduction, it's not necessarily to do with the standard idea about uh, market competition. 
Yeah, these aren't, um, they're canny individuals, but they're not necessarily geniuses in the sense that they haven't created some amazing new product or something like that. Why don't you describe how, um, let's, I, I guess the, the easiest thing to do is kind of take a potted history, uh, a potted kind of walk through your book. Um, but let, let's, why don't we go back and why don't you describe how the rich get this rich? Well, so the, the, the problem that everyone faces when you're trying to get rich is competition. Um, that's the fact of life in a market economy. And, and it may shock you somewhat if you haven't been in an economics class for some time. But in a world of perfect competition, according to economic theory, nobody should ever get rich. Um, every, once you come up with something that's making a lot of money uh, or some kind of investment strategy that's going to get you a huge return, people should come along, pile into the same thing that you're doing, and away go your profits, and um, you should be uh, poor again. And if you look at so competition places, drives down prices, in other words, it, we, well, exactly, and and, and that eliminates um, profitability, uh, or or it erases. You know, if you have some kind of um, new thing that you've uh, come up with. Um, uh, you know, it should erase that kind of competitive differentiation, like a new new way of doing business, for instance. And if you look at things that are truly competitive, areas of human endeavor that are truly competitive and generally fair, um, like sports, for instance, you find that it is really rare that someone comes along who dominates a sport for a long time, like Djokovic in tennis or, or even Andy Murray in tennis, who hasn't really been dominant globally. But uh, th those kinds of people are incredibly rare. Uh, in business, by contrast, people who are successful for decades on end at beating everyone – are not rare at all. Uh, there's uh, 1,800 billionaires in the world. I mean, there are m many, many multiples of that in terms of multi-millionaires. And, um, and the reason for that, as you can probably guess, is because the competition isn't entirely fair. And the, the book is basically about a potted history of people in history and the modern day who have um, been able to take uh, e either make comp the situation unfair or take advantage of uh, already unfair situation to make themselves <laughs> phenomenally wealthy. OK, so let, why, don't, why don't you give us an example? I, I think the one I the one that always springs to mind to me anyway is Bill Gates. And you talk about him in your book and you know, Bill Gates, the inventor of Microsoft, the most widely used computer operating system in the world. Well, how is how is computers a free market? It, uh, sorry, how is computers a rigged market? It's a free market. There's all sorts of competition. Bill Gates, you argue, has actually made his fortunes, his big fortunes, not by being a, a great innovator, but by m making sure that that by carving himself out, legally all sorts of little monopolies yeah that's right that's right so let, let me let's contrast two people uh donald trump um, man in the news lately and bill gates so the way you get rich in free market competition normally is you take a lot of risk right if you're investing um and you want a high return you've got to take a lot of risk maybe you invest in emerging markets or you invest in some kind of exotic derivative uh donald trump got rich by taking a lot of risk he inherited um a fortune worth a bit more than a hundred million dollars in today's money. He plowed that into New York real estate, uh, nearly all of it. 
New York real estate in from 1970 to the present day returned 6,000%, um, actually quite a bit more than 6,000%. And that's just average. He could have bought a parking lot and he would have made that return. Uh, so – uh, so he basically took – he had a lot of money and he took a lot of risk with it. If he'd invested in Detroit, it would be a very different story. But that's the classic way to get rich, right? You have money. You take a huge amount of risk. Bill Gates also took a lot can of I, risk. Can I, can I, can I and, just interrupt yeah. you for one second? I would argue that New York real estate is in itself a monopoly. So he might have – he in effect, Donald Trump – invested in a monopoly because there's a limit on how much expansion there can be in New York real estate. It's even more so the case in London. You know, planning laws and just the realities of geography mean that, uh, you know, a, a great deal of expansion isn't that possible. So Donald Trump, he obviously timed his investments well. He got in an, uh, early in a bull market, but he also kind of, if you like, bought a license to a monopoly. Well, that is very true, um, and to his uh, credit, uh, Donald Trump had no um, no doubt in his mind when he took the the risk that it was going to pay off. You know, if he'd invested in another in another city, I mean, Detroit in the seventies was equally depressed. Um, New York in the seventies was extremely depressed, as you probably recall, um, and uh, you know it wouldn't have paid off. People argue, um, and this is this is uh, a point uh, that's you know, a legitimate point. People argue that as, you know, over time, New York real estate, um, and even in Trump's day, New York real estate um, becomes a monopoly because. Only if you are extremely well connected can you get permission to build. In other words, anyone could make money in New York real estate if they could build something in New York. Most people can't because it is extremely difficult to get permission to build. You are whenever you build something in New York, you're blocking the views of the richest people in the world who don't do not take kindly to that sort of activity. But Donald Trump, um, because of his political connections, which came through initially from his father, uh, who was a big hitter in the Democratic Party. Uh, ironically enough, Democratic Party in, in New York City. Um, because of the political connections, Donald Trump was able to get uh, a lot of these um, real estate deals, which wouldn't be open to most people. And he's very open upfront about that in his book, uh, Art of the Deal. Um, but uh, so, so, so you're, you're right. There is a monopoly element in it. But the main thing Trump did, I would say, was he, he took a lot of risk. If he'd invested in another city, and maybe he knew the, the, the geographic characteristics of New York made it more likely to end up as it has done but um uh, but it was still a big risk okay so uh bill gates bill gates also takes a lot of risk right because he's investing um not very much money actually uh, virtually nothing of his of his, of his own money uh, you know he starts as uh, upper middle class but not but not uh, well off by any means uh he starts with a little money he's taking a lot of risk because it's an entrepreneurial venture uh a lot of entrepreneurial ventures uh, are extremely risky on the other hand most people who who undertake such ventures don't end up as the world's richest man uh, you know if you think about it you think of technology as this absolutely dog eat dog world where fortunes are gained and lost in a minute and you <laughs> you build something in your garage and the next thing you know you're, you're a billionaire and then the, the day after that you collapse but if you 
if you think about it, um, actually, at a certain point, technology stops being like that. And Bill Gates has been the world's um, richest man for a long time now. Well, he spars with Carlos Slim, but he's been America's richest man for over 20 years. In with the uh, the heights of um, high technology, it stops being competitive, and and basically. The reason for that is uh, a phenomenon that now I think a lot of people are, are very well aware of is network effects. And what I talk about um, network effects, meaning that uh, the more uh, people buy a product and the implication of network effects is that the more people buy a product, the more people will want to buy it. And the story I tell is about how Bill Gates uh, was able, because his father was a lawyer, to gain an advantage over everyone else. Uh, you know, Microsoft, people often tell the story of technology sector as being a story of innovation. But in um, point of fact, uh, you know, Microsoft lagged on just about every major innovation in the technology sector that you can think of. Um, they were lagged on networking. They lagged on multitasking, on graphical user interfaces, on the mouse, on the Internet, on Internet browsing. Pretty much anything you can think of, they were behind the curve. But what they did do extremely well was they were able to get legal protections for their investment. At the time Bill Gates started out, um, it was uh, actually impossible to uh, copyright or patent software. There was simply no legal protection. And so you know, the reason he was able to uh, expand so dramatically and get, his, get an advantage on his early, early rivals is he was able to set up legal contracts that protected his, his rights. And he really set the, the path then that all these other tech billionaires have followed. What you've described in the, in the kind of cycle that technology goes through, I guess that's where we are with something like Google or Facebook now, is that they're just so evolved. It's, 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 it's almost impossible for anyone to come along and compete with them. That's that's right. Uh, you, you, you may recall that uh, in the 80s, Bill Gates understood this very early. I mean, that's his – if you want to say Bill Gates is a genius, there that is his element of genius. Did he patent he said, other people's ideas in a way? Uh, he, well – he did, but there was nothing wrong with that at the time. So um, the thing that became MS-DOS, the first Microsoft real breakout product, was actually developed by another company. It contained uh, a lot of function codes from another um, software company. But at the time, you couldn't patent software. Software was just freely uh, given away, and um, you couldn't copyright software. Uh, so there was nothing wrong with you know, taking somebody else's product and turning it into your own. Uh, the, the, but, um, you know, at the time, no one knew how to, how to copyright it. And, 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 and Bill Gates's genius was he understood if he could do this, he understood the economics very early. Um, he, in a, speaking to a conference in 1981, he said, you know, I probably shouldn't say this in public, but if you do it right, uh, this is a natural monopoly business. <laughs> and he was right. You should never, never say those kinds of things in public. You know, he had a lot of trouble with antitrust authorities 20 years later. Um, but uh, an economist won a Nobel Prize actually a couple of years ago, a French economist, for explaining the economics of how this works. But Bill Gates actually he he understood it in, back in the 80s. So if, if you want to say that Bill Gates is a genius, that there's a case to be made, um, and, and it stems from that. Who's the richest man that ever lived? 
Well, that is a hard question to answer. For a long time, people thought it was um, this fellow Marcus Crassus, uh, a very rich Roman. And I tell the story of Marcus <laughs> Crassus in the book um, for, for a couple reasons. One, because it's um, – it's a great story, and uh, rich Romans, generally speaking, um, wrote down everything they did, even the bad things, because they didn't think anyone uh, would be able to read <laughs> when, uh, who shouldn't be reading about their exploits. Um, and uh, and second, because it was a bit of a, a bit of a warning. So uh, the thing that Crassus did was he discovered that um, Rome was actually. In some, to some historians say, some economic historians say that Rome was a bit like a market economy. And what he did to defeat the problem of market competition that bedevils us all is that he went into politics and he discovered that the way to really get rich was to go into politics. And, um, at the time I wrote this, I had no idea Donald Trump wasn't even on the horizon. <laughs> but, um, now that he's there, um, I, I, I am, I got go a little worried, I have to admit, because um, that that story of Marcus Crassus is also a story of how the Roman Empire fell, um, which was that um, once they were in office, the super rich discovered that they could be make a lot more money from looting other rich people than by looting the poor or by uh, – conquering foreign empires and so, so far i don't think we see this with <laughs> donald trump and i certainly hope he doesn't get that idea although i wish he'd stop insulting other companies on twitter it's a very crassus like behavior um and uh yeah 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 so so I, I i assume trump is just trying to build his brand and not not um uh trying to um uh directly increase his uh fortune but uh let's keep an eye on him shall we yeah um I wrote a film once, and in the film it, it argued – when I say I wrote it, I rewrote a film for this Italian company. But the argument was that Jacob Fugger was the richest man who ever lived. Now, Fugger's – I don't think you go into – you don't discuss Fugger in your book, do you? No. no, no. Oh, OK. So he was um, a, a, a German um, in 15th and 16th century in the Holy Roman Empire. And – Again, he made his money by lending kings, particularly uh, Charles of Spain, who would then become the Holy Roman Emperor as well. He lent him money and then Charles couldn't pay them. He helped with the money. Charles secured the, the, the throne. Then Charles was unable to pay him back. And so in exchange for not for forgetting the debts, Fugger claimed all the mineral rights to all the gold and copper um, mines um, all through the Tyrol and Hungary and Austria and um, so that was one fortune by securing himself um, a, basically a monopoly on metal and then he uh, bought all the goldsmiths and was in charge of actually stamping coins and he also was in a, another uh, a big racket at the time which was selling papal favours so selling absolution. Uh, so if you pay me this money, I've got a contact with the Pope and he'll give you your absolution. And it was an almighty racket. And eventually it backfired because it brought about Protest Protestantism, um, because that's that level of corruption was what the Lutherians and others were so sick of. But Fugger earned an absolute fortune, but a bit like Warren Buffett, he was a very understated man and, uh, you know, kept his secrets to himself.
Well, I do talk about that. that you know, ironically, um, and this is one reason I started with ancient Rome in the book. It, the, the wealth secrets, in some respects, in the old, you know, medieval period, were a lot simpler and very straightforward. I mean, they basically consisted of of giving people monopolies, of the, the, the crown awarding monopolies to people. I, I do talk about one family, the, the House of Turn and Taxis, um, in in Germany, who, who during the Holy Roman Empire they got a monopoly on a postal service, largely for the same reason. They were initially doing the post for the uh, um, Holy Roman Emperor, but he wouldn't pay his bills, and so they started selling to the public, and before you know it, they got a monopoly on delivering the post in the entire Holy Roman Empire. They today remain one of the largest um, landholders in, in Germany, so certainly – you know, back in the day, uh, you, you could – I mean the, you wouldn't want to be nostalgic about it because most people <laughs> lived in abject poverty. But um, at the same time, wealth secrets were, were pretty easy back then. You have to be a lot more clever now like uh, Bill Gates to um, to figure out a way to uh, to get a monopoly in the modern day. Yeah. Um, William the Conqueror – I'm just reading a, the Daily Mail list of the richest ever people. And Rockefeller is third, by the way, and Carnegie is fourth. And we're going to talk about those two in a second. Um, the, the richest man is, is, is an African uh, king by the name of Mansa Musa I, um, born in 1280. Um, but, um, and he was among the, uh, the, the places that he ruled was Timbuktu. <laughs> How about that? But anyway, um, the one I wanted to talk about was just following on from what you just said was William the Conqueror, who is regarded as the seventh richest person who ever lived. And of course, you know, his monopoly that he established in 1066 when he conquered England and basically took control of all the land, you know, the crown still owns, um, you know, the, I, can't, I don't know what the exact figure is, but it is a large portion of the land in the UK. Um, I think something like 70% of land in the UK is owned by fewer than 6,000 people and the Queen is the single largest landowner. So that particular monopoly has, has lasted a thousand years. Well, and that uh, is a good kind of business to um, be in. I, I mean, the, the the difficulty with the rich lists like like that one is um, there, there are two two things. One is uh, that it's very difficult to um, convert uh, from historical Africa to the modern day in terms of purchasing power. Uh, yeah. You know, you know, more slaves, fewer iPods, right? So <laughs> you um, you you can't uh, really convert, and so that's why nobody really knows who's Who's the richest? I, you know, one people. It's a one time they said Marcus Crassus, but then historians uh, revalued the Roman currency by a factor of one hundred, <laughs> saying they got it wrong before, and so now he's generally off the list. And so it, it's a, it's a, you know, it goes, it goes up and down. No one really can convert with a, a great deal of accuracy. So yeah, and the other hard. problem is, is the the value of gold and silver on a relative basis is much lower now because they're no longer official money, particularly silver. Well, and and the value of real estate. So here, you know, here's the trick. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people on the, say, the Sunday Times rich list who are in real estate. Now, when, uh, you know, many of them who got their, their real estate in medieval times um, through some of the wealth secrets we've been discussing. Um, and, uh, and the thing is that 
is one that is a very good way to uh, make and maintain a fortune, uh, especially over uh, you know hundreds of years. The uh, the bad news is, of course, usually when a country has a huge number of real estate fortunes at the top of its rich list, it's because there's a bubble in real estate, right? <laughs> so uh, that was that was Japan in the the, the rich list in 1995 was dominated by the Japanese. I think four of the top five were Japanese. They're all real estate fortunes, and now there's not even a Japanese person in the top 100 because the, the real estate bubble just collapsed. Yeah, um, the, the, and, the, um, uh, the problem with UK real estate has been a real estate bubble for, the, for my entire life. That's <laughs> true, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't invest too heavily right now in London Prime, especially if you're, um, you know, if you're thinking in dollars. Because, uh, uh, yeah, since Brexit, the returns haven't been entirely um, favorable. No. <laughs> By the way, Mansa Musa. I'm just reading this. Made his money. Um, the areas that he controlled uh, uh, supplied half the world's salt and gold. So salt and gold is how Mansa Musa made his made his dough. Well, often if you can just get a monopoly on a very simple commodity, uh, you, this I mean this even started Oil. out in the America. Oil, um, you you know things that are uh, sta- absolute staples. Uh, often, uh, the crown would award monopolies to people for the import of sugar and this kind of thing. So, I, actually, that is uh, um, that, that was a great wealth secret at the at the time. I mean, the, the problem with people like um, uh, William the Conqueror uh, is that. It's very hard to disassociate their wealth from the wealth of the kingdom they they ruled, and so most often, um, you know, historians will exclude those people from rich lists. Um, so, for instance, like Caesar, the Caesars usually don't uh, aren't taken into, into account because you know what was their wealth and what was the Roman Empire's wealth. It's it's quite hard it, to say. It, so it was held in trust. <laughs> As you say, and yeah, yeah, it's become a little more clear, I think, in the case of England's queen. But even, even now, probably still a little bit hard to say who is um, whose whose money is whose. Okay, so why don't we tell the story of of of, of three of the top ten, which is Rockefeller, Carnegie, and uh, Vanderbilt. Well, so uh, at at the time um, there were uh, that these uh, men got rich. Th- there was a lot of innovation in corporate law. Basically, it was the first time you had stock markets and the first time that you had uh, investments. Uh, the, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was created in the uh, late. 1800s. I, you know, prior to that, the only companies that were large at all were in infrastructure, and then gradually other industries began to grow up, and people began to invest in these industries and um, have the the laws to do it. And what these uh, gentlemen realized uh, was that if you could game these laws, you could make yourself a monopoly. Um, Let's see, Pierpont Morgan is someone I, I talk about in the chapter. His great invention was uh, uh, was industry consolidation. He basically figured out a way to make cartels work. Uh, for reasons I discussed in the book, cartels are actually really hard uh, to make work. People are always cheating on them. You, you've seen OPEC's problems. OPEC 
can set up a cartel. There's nothing that prevents them from doing so. It's just really hard to get anyone to stick <laughs> to the uh, – um, there's this big intensive to cheat. And what um, Pierpont Morgan realized was uh, using these new laws of corporate investment, there was a way to make a cartel that would actually work, and that was by having all the members own stock in each other. So the profits of all were a benefit to all. And uh, basically they created a lot of ways to make money that are now completely illegal um, because <laughs> the government realized that, hey, we've, we've created um, all these laws that allow you to now actually develop monopolies and we're going to have to figure out a way to regulate these monopolies, hence the, the birth of antitrust law. So, so there, there was a lot of I, I actually um, some of the you know the, many of the schemes were absolutely in, ingenious and um, and really satisfyingly uh, the uh, the people who took advantage of these schemes were absolutely convinced of their righteousness. Um, the Rockefeller, for instance, uh, claimed that he was like Noah. Uh, bringing an ark to the people in the oil industry who were suffering the flood. And what he neglected to mention <laughs> was that the flood was created by his own cartel, which basically wiped everyone else out of the oil and re oil refining industry and gave him an over 95% share of U.S. oil refining. But he thought he was doing God's work. Isn't that and they, they, uh, there was, isn't this a brilliant quote from one of them all about um, competition? Can you remember what that is offhand? Yes, uh, I think that was Carnegie. He wrote a book, a good, good very good book, incidentally, uh, about getting rich. And he said, um, you know, <laughs> uh, adding uh, another factory when the existing factory will satisfy demand uh, creates nothing but heartache and misery in the world. And indeed, it is, it, <laughs> if you are a businessman, somebody building a factory like yours is real heartache and misery. On the other hand, convincing people not to do that when you are becoming the richest man in the world, as Carnegie was, uh, <laughs> you know, that's a real trick. So, um, uh, he, you know, he, he was able to do that, although he wouldn't have been able to do it without um, Morgan, who basically um, Car Carnegie was starting to face real competition uh, he he built up uh his uh his monopoly initially with a lot of money that he got from essentially insider trading which wasn't illegal at the time but uh you know obviously illegal now uh got, built up this monopoly with a lot of insider trading it was facing some serious competition and then pierport morgan built one of his massive industrial combines u.s steel that then ruled the u.s steel industry for the next 60 years or so yeah, I'm seeing that very same dynamic at the end of my road. There's been a, a, a corner shop that's been servicing the area for perfectly well for goodness knows how long. And then last year they sold it and this, this, pair, this pair of brothers bought it. And then literally six or nine months after they bought the shop and they've kind of upgraded it and very nice. Um, one of the supermarket chains has just opened a kind of uh, a local metro um, selling everything, and it's totally decimated the uh, the corner shop's business. 
Well, at one time, uh, there, there are huge uh, scale economies. That's the sort of the point of the Robert Barron's chapters. I talk about scale economies and how to make, work those, make those work for you. I mean, I, I guess I'm sort of at the beginning of the book, I'm introducing the kind of basic concepts you need to understand why someone's much more complicated strategy like Bill Gates, uh, well, the basic concepts of how that, that works. And, and, uh, and retail, uh, of course, has huge economies of scale as Walmart has perhaps most effectively um, proven, you know, the bigger it is, the, the better it does. That actually uh, created such a problem in the United States of the uh, robber baron era that um, a lot of antitrust laws were put into effect that prevented uh, real estate's um, expansion. And um, they removed those laws in the 1980s, and now we have the identical city centers that you see everywhere today. I mean, yeah. so it, it, I'd say in this case, it, it may be a more of a case of economic efficiency uh, actually actually, actually, making sense here, but, um, but one, could, one, could make a, one could make an argument. So, so many times we've seen uh, people get rich, not by, you know, inventing some brilliant new product and bringing it to market, but by manipulating existing systems, finding loopholes in the law, um, and you know finding the holes in regulation and you know so many well-intended laws and regulations and and uh, government acts seem to backfire and they end up creating more inequality when in fact they were intended to reduce it and we, we see this time and time again um you know income tax is one example you know, income tax, people pay high levels of income tax and then that wealth is shared. But the very rich just avoid paying income tax because they get their income from other ways by the appreciation, of the value of their assets. When you when you see all this, this kind of dynamic of the it's I suppose it's the law of unintended consequences at work. Does that turn you does that make you kind of long for a society, a, a genuinely free market, a place with no rules and no regulations or does it make you long for a heavily regulated market? Which side of that particular argument do you fall on? Uh, you know, I tend to go for uh, heavy regulation, but I, I'll say that that is completely um, arbitrary. Uh, the as an economist, the solution you're proposing, essentially a libertarian uh, solution, absolutely makes um, absolutely makes sense to me. One thing that really surprised me uh, about the uh, book was, uh, you know, some of the reviews that were more left-leaning. Uh, for instance, there was a review in the United States, the Kirkus Reviews, that one it said, uh, you know, will will make libertarian heads explode. And when I read that review, I was very surprised because, you know, in the book I try not to judge anyone. Uh, I, um, I I basically talk about you know why why these people did the way that they things they did i hopefully in a sympathetic way and that uh, i i don't think that they were uh, bad people i think they were just responding to the kind of incentives that they saw and the way that they could figure out how to how to make it um how to make it very rich and most of these people were really obsessed with becoming rich but um you, you know the, uh, but you could certainly to fix this problem you could go uh for you know, more regulation, which will in turn create more problems, uh, or you could go for a libertarian solution. I think in the book, um, the the case of more regulation just 
absolutely backfiring is the case. I talk about the financial sector. That's my real contribution to the, uh, the rise of the 1%. I talk about how the financial sector worked. And basically, that was a case of more and more regulation just absolutely backfiring and <laughs> making the sector, um, uh, you know, it eventually the financial sector in about 2005, 2006 was earning almost a half of all the profits in the entire U.S. economy in one sector. And that was just a disastrous case of very complicated, very elaborate regulation having almost exactly the opposite effect of what was intended. So why do you, I mean, there's so many examples of, in history of regulation going wrong. Why do you favor a, high, a heavily regulated solution? Well, just in the sense that uh, um, if, if you, you, what, where, what do you go back to? In other words, uh, as I talk about in the robber barons era, when that basic regulation that created um, you know, joint stock companies and, um, and com- corporations that could be incorporated in the U.S. as a whole, I don't think people would want to remove those basic regulations. And if you – if you at least have those, those were completely gameable, as the robber barons proved. So, so you 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 can't really. I, I can't see that you can realistically go back to a, a state of nature. Although, um, you know, sometimes I I do think it would be nice. I, it just uh, seeing all the the nerds from high school turn up as the world's. Um, Billionaires. It's, it's so annoying. You know, a quarter of the a quarter of the top twenty fortunes in the world are our technology sector fortunes, and um, these 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 um, technology billionaires kind of talk about. They I tend to be very libertarian in origin, and I just what are they thinking? I mean, that they are their uh, fortunes are the product of very sophisticated law and regulation that protects their intellectual property rights. The kind of incredibly sophisticated law and regulation that can only exist in a very highly regulated, lawyer-dominated you, you know, society where there's a huge legal system and a, and a political system that creates these kind of laws and enforces them very finely. You know, this, this, is, this is – they are not uh, – when they're talking about libertarianism, you know, just remember, nerds do not rule the world in a state of nature, right? You know, this is a very yeah. different but world. But you're, 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 yeah. you're pointing out the flaws – in their arguments you're not pointing out the flaws in libertarianism the fact that they've benefited from from failed regulation and exploited dumb patenting laws which are an evil in themselves doesn't negate the argument for libertarianism surely it it, it promotes it i mean, i can certainly see what you're what you're, i can see, see your point and I, I have known a lot of um uh, clever people who are libertarians, uh, often very rich uh, people, but also <laughs> very clever. And um, I did the, the the problem for me is is the point I made earlier is is where do you stop? At what point, uh, you know, if you went back to a situation where there is no regulation of uh, commerce, then yes, you do get uh, uh, you would get a, a situation more like uh, perfect competition. But does anyone really want to go back that? Far? And so uh, I guess um, uh, uh, go yeah. forward, Sam, not go back, go forward. <laughs> Sorry, I just that politicized your comment. Um, yes, um, go forwards to a uh, to a, a libertarian uh, future. Then you know I, I do think there there is this problem about how far forward uh, do you go uh, before it all um, 
uh, you know, bef- before you, you um, run into trouble. If you if you have any law at all, I think that it probably doesn't work. But I, I should say, you know, this the book doesn't talk about you know policies prescriptions. And one reason um, I didn't talk about policy prescriptions in the book is one, it would be kind of boring, and two, um, I wanted to let people make their own decisions. And three, um, I, I'm not really that kind of economist. I'm a kind of economist who does sort of a business analysis and uh, tries to evaluate. Uh, you know what companies are doing well and what companies are doing badly using a economic uh, framework. I'm not an economist who draws up uh, lengthy papers on the best policy decisions. So probably I'm not the best uh, person to be sure. asking about uh, what's, what libertarianism. What, what's good about the book is that, um, and it's it's rather like the world in which we live today. And you you know people read those book their book and they'll read the stories of all these people. And some people will go, capitalism is the problem. And other people will go, capitalism is the solution. And some people will go, regulation is the problem. And other people will go, regulation is the solution. So you tell some great stories. And I think whatever your political and economic leaning, you can, you can infer what you want from those stories. Yes, I think uh, the Daily Mail said rich and poor will enjoy it equally. (laughs) Thank you, you, Daily Mail. And um, yes, um, that was my sort of objective in in writing it, I think. Excellent. Well, um, the book is called Wealth Secrets of the – hang on a minute. Let me read the exact title out. Wealth Secrets of the 1%, The Truth About Money, Markets and Multimillionaires. And the author is Sam Wilkin. And Sam, if people want to find out more about you and what you do and they want to book you for a highly lucrative speech in, uh, in Dubai, how do they go about doing that? Well, the, they could, there's uh, samwilkin.com. Uh, it does my public speaking. And there's also a, a website for the book, which has a lot of photos, including photos that aren't in, in the book that do the backstory, especially on Durabai Ambani, this Indian billionaire um, that we talk about, also a lot on ancient Rome, um, and probably a good uh, 400 photos or so. So if you've, if you've read the book and you, um, you want to see a little bit more about the people who are in it, um, I, I'd recommend that. Website sets at secrets1percent.com, all uh, one word. Great stuff. Sam Wilkin, thank you very much. The pleasure. Thank you. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com? That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 